everyone. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. If there's one person I've wanted to interview since COVID-19 was thrust upon us, it's Bill Gates. Five years before it happened, he predicted a major outbreak in a now widely shared TED Talk. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus. He also said we wouldn't be ready for it. And he was right. Now, the Microsoft co-founder and billionaire philanthropist has become, for better and for worse, a central character in the COVID story. The good news? His foundation has pledged more than $350 million to fight the disease, including funding vaccine efforts at AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax. The bad news? He's been vilified by anti-vaxxers and other conspiracy theorists who claim he seeded the virus for his own nefarious purposes. But he says he's optimistic about the world's chances of seeing through the wilder theories and of beating the disease. He also has some thoughts about when. This is my conversation with Microsoft co-founder and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bill Gates. You warned about a pandemic like this years before it happened, and your warnings are forever etched in my brain. Now that we are here, what do you see happening next? How bad does it get, and how long are we in this for? Well, fortunately, the innovation in diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines will get us us largely out of this by the end of 2021. Uh, The therapeutics will start to cut the death rate, but the true end comes when between natural infection and the vaccine, we have this herd immunity. And, And for rich countries, sometime next year, you know, ideally in the first half. So we're going to be okay? Is that what you're saying? Well, we're certainly going to be okay. We're lucky this one wasn't a more fatal disease. I do think this time we'll pay attention and, you know, have the same type of practice and preparation. Some countries, you know, did very, very well. The U.S. uh, did not. So your foundation has given more than $350 million now to fight COVID. You are backing a South Korean vaccine in particular. Why that vaccine? And are there any other vaccines out there that look promising to you? We're behind a lot of different vaccines. Uh, We're funding manufacturing capacity in many different sites, particularly for AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax. We may do that for some of the other vaccines, but those are the ones that are the most scalable, low cost, because we're trying to make sure we can end it not just in the rich countries, but also in the developing countries. And that benefits everyone if we achieve that. You know, we're even asking the U.S. to contribute like they've done with other global health crises, which so far they haven't uh, gotten around to that. You know, the Novavax phase one data came out and looked quite promising, actually above some of the others to really stop the virus from growing in your upper respiratory tract to block transmission. That's tough. It's easier to block to reduce sickness than it is to block transmission. So how confident are you that we will have a working vaccine that can be distributed in mass quantities by the end of 2020? Well, the initial vaccine, in terms of its effectiveness against sickness and transmission, won't be ideal. You know, the the phase three primary endpoint is for 50% effectiveness, and it may not have the long duration that one of the later constructs will. So some of those, particularly the more expensive ones, will mainly be used in the rich countries as a bit of a stopgap. We'd be lucky 
uh, to have much before the end of the year, but then enough will complete that during the first half of next year, a number are very likely to get approved, and then we need to scale up. You know, we need billions of doses to get the places that have a hard time doing the sheltering and are already so poor that the economics effects are quite dramatic. And, you know, so it's, it's the biggest challenge uh, the global health community has ever faced. I think we'll rise to it, even though the right investments were not made, and in the case of the U.S. at least, the lack of organization around testing and trials has been very disappointing. Will it be a one or two doses and you're done, or do you think this is something we're going to have to get year after year? Those are things that you really have to get out there and get lots of human data before you understand. But with so many companies working on it, uh, we can afford actually quite a few failures and still have something with low cost and long duration. Now, for so many years, the so-called anti-vaxxers, people have said, well, if they live through a pandemic like their grandparents did, they would think differently. Well, here we are, and the feelings haven't changed. How concerned are you about vaccine misinformation? And that's so many people out there might just not get it, even if it is available. Yeah, I, I remember when the two times I was in the White House, I was told I had to go listen to anti-vaxxers like Robert Kennedy Jr. And so, yes, it's... It is ironic that, you know, people are questioning vaccines or actually having to say, oh, my God, how else can you get out of a tragic pandemic in terms of death and economic effects? You know, hopefully we'll have, you know, people of both parties who are trusted speaking out in a credible way, people who've been known to, you know, admit mistakes and, and develop credibility over time with the various constituencies. But... You know, you, you do have to worry because we do need a lot of people to take the vaccine to get that full herd immunity. Should it be voluntary or should it be mandatory? Well, making something mandatory can often backfire even when you're, you're doing a favor to the community. So uh, I doubt, you know, they'll choose that. You might say if you're going to work in an old folks home or, you know, have any exposure to elderly people, there might be some circumstances where it would be required. What about schools? Should it be mandatory for kids going back to school? Early on, I doubt that'll be a primary thing. I think, you know, the teachers who are elderly or who live in multi-generational households where they necessarily have exposure to older people, they would be a good target. That's more leveraged than doing the full student body in the times when the the vaccine is, is going to be scarce. As it gets more available, yes, you'd like to go for young people, particularly if one of the constructs is very good at transmission blocking. Now, you already have countries like the United States that are moving to lock down vaccine supplies, buying up huge supplies of potential vaccines, buying up the gear needed to administer them. How harmful is that? We're asking this vaccine, even if one company invents it, we're saying that they ought to let other companies to the manufacturer. I think it's really exemplary that a number of companies have committed to make this a non-profit activity, just break even, and for the poorest countries, just get their marginal cost. So we're part of funding those extra factories being built at risk, and so they'll be standing by for that approval. The U.S. as yet has not helped come up with procurement money for the poor countries to get access. It's possible 
that'll get into the supplemental bill. You know, I'm encouraging Republicans and Democrats to include a total of $8 billion, half for therapeutics, half for vaccine, in whatever relief bill gets passed. So the U.S. doesn't look selfish. We deserve credit. We funded more R&D than any country. But on factories and procurement, we've only taken care of ourselves. If we just add this, which is less than 1% of the bill, then it's a, a typical U.S. picture where we show up strategically, humanitarianly, and to help ourselves to avoid the disease coming back in a super effective way. Does the foundation have any specific plans to help get it to developing countries that are not as advantaged as we are? Yes, our, our foundation, you know, the thing we've had the most success at is getting vaccines that were only in the rich world and getting them to all the children of the world. And that's why childhood death rates have been cut from about 10% of all the kids that are born now down to about 5%. And so every call I'm on with the pharma leaders, the country leaders, you know, trying to get the U.S. to put up some procurement money in this bill, it's all with this goal of, hey, it shouldn't matter if you're rich within your country or between countries. We need everybody to be protected, and that's going to mean some meaningful part of the population getting the vaccine. We talk a lot about vaccines, but less about therapeutics. What are you seeing in terms of promising treatments out there for this horrible disease? You know, I wonder if drugs are going to play a more important role here than we know. Oh, absolutely. And it's easier to trial drugs, although the U.S. has been very disorganized on this. We used a U.K. trial that we funded part of to prove out dexamethasone. You know, Gilead had enough proof on remdesivir to move ahead with that. There's two other antivirals coming that actually are orally available, so better in some respects. There's monoclonal antibodies coming, and then there's quite a few additional immune modulators. And so between those different classes of drugs, you know, we should be able to drop the death rate a lot. It's already dropped quite a bit as doctors have realized not to use the ventilator as much, to use oxygen earlier, to use the prone position, and the two drugs, dexamethasone and remdesivir, that we have. But before the end of the year, we'll have monoclonal antibodies, and those, those could be quite dramatic in their benefits. There's a lot of bad information about therapeutics out there. Debunk some of the myths for us, hydroxychloroquine being one of them. You know, we, this is an age of science, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. The idea is about testing and hydroxychloroquine, you know, the numbers are, are quite clear. It got confused because the trials were done so poorly, but there's lots of good things coming in the therapeutic area that are, you know, really proven to work without the severe side effects. So, you know, a little bit slow, but a lot of good news to come in that domain. There are some raging internet conspiracy theories out there about you wanting to implant chips in people via a vaccine, and you are the center of some, frankly, ludicrous narratives. Does that upset you personally? How do you feel about all that? Well, it's kind of strange because they take the fact that I'm, you know, I'm involved with vaccines, that part's true. You know, it involves saving millions of lives for lots and lots of different diseases, including you know, HIV and malaria, they just reverse it that instead of giving money to save lives, I'm, you know, making money to get rid of lives, you know. So just by inverting it, 
and ascribing ill intent, it takes this complex situation that was unexpected and may you know, make it feel like it's, it's more understandable. If that stops people from taking the vaccine or you know, looking at the latest data about how they should behave, including wearing a mask, then that's a, you know, a big problem. I wouldn't have expected this. It's just a bit strange that it's been politicized and the conspiracy period people have had a heyday. So you do worry that it could potentially deter people from being vaccinated? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we see that with measles deaths where you'll get a community that's sort of anti-vaccine and if measles gets in there, then kids die. You're listening to my conversation with Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Up next, President Trump is forcing Chinese-owned social media sensation TikTok to sell to a U.S. buyer, and Microsoft has raised its hand. The former Microsoft CEO weighs in on that and the recent tech antitrust hearings, having been in the same hot seat that the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google are in now. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. In your time as CEO of Microsoft, you were influential in the company's push into China, and obviously you're still a big shareholder. Microsoft has a long track record and history of working closely with Chinese companies. Now there are also concerns that Microsoft could be too close to China when it comes to potentially acquiring TikTok. Ultimately, do you think Microsoft is a good home for TikTok? Well, the whole situation is quite novel in terms of you know, what are the principles involved here? You know, what principles should China apply to companies in China or the U.S.? Are those reciprocal and thought through and predictable? You know, I'm not at the company now. We've made investments in China. We have, you know, engineers from all over the world, including in China. Microsoft is very careful about its data promises and you know, we'll try to have strong relationships globally. We won't do things that are, are hostile, are viewed as hostile. What about the app in general? Obviously, it's, it's a very popular app. I mean, is this something that you would like to see in the Microsoft family? Well, it's nice that TikTok's created some competition through innovation. And, you know, it doesn't seem like preventing that informa- in innovation from being available that that makes much much sense when you want new things out there. I am not in the target audience, so I'm certainly not expert. I, you know, my, I've gotten a lot of education from my youngest daughter about this and why she spends time on it. So, you know, they did a great job on it, and there's a lot of ways to take it, and hopefully, you know, that's allowed to happen in some form. Let's talk about what's allowed. Is the Trump administration correct in trying to force this Chinese company, ByteDance, to sell TikTok's U.S. operations or even shut it down in the United States because it's Chinese. Should the company well, su- be subjected to that? I mean, 100 million Americans are using it. Law, I mean, if this is such a clear thing, why wasn't it clear three months ago, six months ago? You know, when people make investments, they should understand what's allowed, what's not allowed, and, you know, therefore, what's the reciprocal principle involved in this thing? So. You know, maybe I'm, I haven't read the right article. Uh, you know, I'm focused on the foundation and the pandemic. And, you know, if, I, if 
I, I'll probably provide advice at some point, but I'm not at the center of this, uh, the decision being made here. I do want to quickly get your thoughts on the antitrust situation. Obviously, I'm sure that the hearings have been a bit of deja vu for you. Having gone through a lengthy review process yourself, do you look at companies like Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook and think they've become too powerful? Well, it's these companies are shaping the economy. So the idea that congressmen get a chance to talk to their leaders and try and understand how, you know, what they're doing in terms of media and, and competition, that all makes sense. They were lucky there were four of them on the hot seat. You know, I was all by myself with critics sitting next to me. So, you know, hey, I guess we're getting nicer to CEOs than in the, in, in the old days. I always felt going to Washington and talking about our values and what we did was helpful, particularly, you know, through this pandemic where these companies have done so well. Now understanding, you know, what's it like to be an entrant into these markets. There's legitimate issues there that in a kind of a scattershot way did get raised. This is my conversation with Microsoft co-founder and billionaire philanthropist, Bill Gates. Coming up, his worst case, best case outlook as the world continues to weather a global pandemic and how post-pandemic governments should plan for what he calls a disaster that could be even bigger than COVID-19. I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. You have a book coming out, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. You think that climate change could be a bigger disaster than COVID. Why is that? Well, certainly climate change will make entire ecosystems die off. It'll make parts of the world you know, impossible to live in. And so the, the actual economic and death toll from climate change will be much, much, much greater than what we have with this pandemic. It's delayed in time, so the current effects aren't as severe. There aren't, you know, 150,000 deaths in the US this year related to climate change. So this is an acute problem, but with a clear solution, and you can go back to normal. Whereas climate change, the scale of the changes required takes decades of invention and decades of of scaling out, you know, perhaps some of the investment restructuring that various countries do after the pandemic to rebuild their economies can have this as a theme. But like other important causes, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this also was predictable and the damage will be very, very large. And if we don't solve the climate problem, do you believe there will be more pandemics? worse pandemics in the future. Well, that's not the only thing. You'll have incredible instability because your ability to grow food in large parts of the world will be so diminished that you'll literally have hundreds of millions of migrants and you won't have a thriving global economy uh, because you will have degraded the ecosystems. And you, there is no quick fix to that thing, unlike the magic vaccine that's a mere year to two years at most to come up with. 
The world has changed so much since you and Melinda put out your annual letter, and I wonder what are the other issues out there that you worry are being sidelined because we're so focused on fighting COVID. Where are we taking our eye off the ball? Yeah, just today I was sending out a letter to other people who've donated to polio eradication and talking to them about how the distraction, which is understandable, has been a huge setback where we thought we were within a couple of years. And so sadly in Africa, there'll be a lot more deaths just from the impact on the health system and how that raises death rates for other diseases way more than the direct effect of COVID itself. How extreme do you think inequality could get? Well, inequality between countries is quite extreme. You know, the toughest places in Africa, you know, you have a hard time surviving and getting enough to eat and your kids in many locations, the majority, their brain never develops, they grow up uh, stunted and so the human potential is not there and you're caught in a trap of instability and malnutrition. We're down from 10% to 5% of children dying before the age of five. Now that'll go back up maybe to six or 7%, but give us three or four years, we'll get back on track with that. If it hasn't ended the kind of generosity and funding of innovation that's been key to that, that progress. Not every billionaire is as generous as you though, despite your urgings. What are some other ways you think we could narrow the, the inequality gap? You know, how would you feel about a return to a wealth tax that could combat that? I've got on my website a lot of ideas for collecting more taxes from the rich that don't, I don't specifically involve a wealth tax because they're, I think there are challenges with that. But you know, anyway, we can have a more progressive tax system without killing the wonderful risk-taking entrepreneurialism in this country. You can have tax systems that in my personal opinion go too far, but we're not at that limit, you know, particularly for capital gains type income. So yes, governments, if they realize that money isn't free, which you know, macroeconomic conditions are confusing some people about that, at least temporarily, we will need taxes to make up for the resources because this pandemic, even just within the country, whether it's low-income families, minority families, kids in the inner city, it sadly has exacerbated almost all the inequality in the society. If you're in a suburban school or private school, the online thing is actually not doing all that badly. Whereas if you're a young kid in the inner city, it, it's not accessible. I'm not sure what's more terrifying, schools reopening or schools not reopening. I'm in a state where my schools aren't reopening. Should schools reopen right now? And, and, and if they don't, is that a year of lost learning for our children? For kids up through even eighth grade, the data suggests that if you make sure that you give the elderly teachers or teachers who live in a multi-generational household and therefore necessarily exposed to elderly people. If you figure out how to have them work at the remote high school level and bring in younger teachers without those risks, you know, I do think there's a huge benefit for the younger people. So we ought to be talking more about some age distinctions here in places with the heavy epidemic, which sadly in the US is a lot of places, high school and college are not gonna get organized enough and, and the disease transmission rate is much higher as you get up 
you know, past say 14 or 15. So, you know, it, it's everybody's scrambling because this is all being done so much at the last minute where some people, you know, thought the cases wouldn't be raging at this point and, and didn't really help us think it through. Well, and this shift to remote work and school is dramatically reshaping companies and families. And I wonder how you see that having a lasting impact on society. Well, there are great things like telemedicine that people have been open-minded to because they've kind of been forced into it. And there's ways to shape that for lower cost and higher quality. The notion broadly of how many office workers need to go into the office, which weeks, which days, how many hours, that's going to get a really big rethink business by business. And you know, you might reduce the total commercial space needed pretty dramatically and take some pressure off of these inner city cores where the rents and traffic are, are very problematic. And so we're not going to do as much business travel, I don't think, because you know, people have been forced to learn Zoom and Teams and the R&D on those things is gonna make them way better, you know, even just a year from now than they are right now. I've been following how Melinda has been talking about the impact this is having on, on women and families. She's been very outspoken about how you and her have navigated uh, work family life. And I'm curious how you're navigating this time. You know, there's this feeling in the home of whose job is more important, moms or dads. How do you answer that question? Well, I'm very good at doing the dishes. Uh, I'm not as good at preparing the food. So hopefully some specialization kicks in there. You know, our kids are older, so we're really lucky we've actually gotten more time with them than we would have under normal circumstances. And obviously, you know, we have a lot of room in our house and a great internet connection. So in our case is atypically nice, you know, and I've you know, tried to make sure it's not loading her, but I, you know, I think it's great she's speaking out because if you're a single parent, if you're in a small space, this is a hugely difficult thing, and it's even hard to measure how tough it's been you know, for those without what we're lucky to have. Worst case scenario for where we are in a year, and what's the best case? Well, the best case is that it's largely gone through natural immunity and vaccine-driven immunity, and that we take this lesson and get ready for the next thing, and that we are able to get most of the jobs back and get eventually the economy back to where it was in January. You know, will that take one or two years? That's certainly within the realm of possibility. The worst case is the disease is still raging, but because I'm, I get hands-on with the therapeutic advances, vaccine advances, I don't think at the end of 2021, certainly in the developed countries, that will be the case. I admit I didn't expect tests being paid for that come back four days late. Who came up with that? You know, they've been told every day, but they won't admit that the system is perverse. Uh, they won't change the incentives because they've, they've said it's perfect. Anyway, even factoring in the unexpected lack of coherence, I think it's very, very likely the U.S. will be out of this by the end of next year. All right. Well, that is, is good to hear. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. We will tell Melinda that you are up for doing more dishes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, really appreciate you taking the time. Bill Gates, wonderful to have you here on Bloomberg. Thanks.
Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Daniel Culbertson, with special help from Mallory Abelhausen. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.